Welcome to Noggin, the Simple Psychology Podcast, where we discuss scientific research in simple and exciting ways that is applicable to everyone. I'm Ben Rasmussen. And I'm McKay Heaton. And we are your hosts. Welcome back to Noggin, the Simple Psychology Podcast. Today we're going to start off by talking about a phenomenon called blindsight. So this was first discovered by actually a graduate student in a lab. They were researching lesions in the brain. So they would cut out a part of a monkey's brain and then see what happened to them to help better understand what the brain did and how that applied to humans. This one specific rhesus monkey was named Helen, and they cut out part of her brain that's called area V1, and that participate in the process of seeing. So if you have area V1 cut out, you will be blind, essentially. Like, you can't see anything. And so this graduate student noticed that Helen, this monkey, would reach out and grab food if he put it in front of her. And so he was really confused because he was like, she is blind. How is she knowing where to put her hand, where to reach out to, how to reach out, and everything, right? So he just didn't get it. He tested this further by putting some obstacles in a room, and then he would put crumbs of food on the floor, and she would navigate around the room to find the crumbs. He was just so confused, so they called it blindsight, because they were blind, but they could still see, so blindsight. This also began to show up in humans, too. So a patient with the initials DB got surgery, and the V1 area in his brain was damaged during the surgery. That left half of his vision gone. So the vision on one side of his visual field was completely gone, and he was halfway blind. So researchers would present horizontal or vertical lines to the blind side of his vision and ask him to guess if the lines were horizontal or vertical. Every time he'd be like, hey, I'm blind, I can't see it. You know that, right? And he'd be like, yeah, we know, just guess. And so he would guess. And he got it right 80% of the time, which is way better than chance. Wow. Way better than chance. Wow, I was right. It's like, what on earth? (laughs) That's very impressive. So that's when it started to show up in humans. And then there's another patient with the initials TN. And I just showed Ben a video of this guy. So they took a hallway and they just put a bunch of obstacles in the way, tripods, microwaves, stands, desks. And this guy, he had damage to V1, part of his brain, couldn't see, he was completely blind, and he literally walked through the hallway and dodged every single obstacle. When they asked him, like, hey, why'd you do that? He was just like, oh, I was just walking through the hallway, I don't know. It just blew everyone's mind. So if you want to look it up, it is on YouTube and the video is called Blindsight-Blindman-Can-See-And-Avoid-Obstacles. It's not that exciting of a video, you know, no sound, just a guy walking (laughs) through a hallway. But if you know what's going on, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, when you realize this guy is blind, it becomes much more impressive (laughs) (laughs) because it is just a person walking down a hallway not tripping over objects. But when you realize you can't see, it becomes very impressive. So we are going to talk today about how our brains can detect things and even when we don't perceive those things, it can still affect us. So blindsight is a way that our brain is detecting, obviously, it's detecting what's around those people, but you know, we are not perceiving it, even though the brain is technically detecting it, if that makes sense. Yeah, so that's a good place for us to start, I think. For our listeners, let's break down what is the V1 part of the brain. Where is that and what is that? 
So I could take this since neuroscience is my thing. They call it V1 just because vision, like vision one, I, I think. Fancy. <laughs> I know. It's not super sophisticated, but it's located in the back of your head. They call it the occipital lobe. And it's just, if you feel on the back of your head, you have two kind of like bumps back there. And that's kind of where V1 is in that general area, just above your neck. As your head curves down, it's kind of that lower part. It's just above the spine. It's the lowest part of the brain in the furthest part back is the best way I can describe it. So, I don't know. Ben, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, so if there's V1, that means there's probably other vision areas. Can you just give us like a brief rundown of what happens when your eyes see something, where it goes from your eyes to the back of your brain, how it gets there, what it does, just briefly for our listeners? So. When light hits your retinas, your retinas take that energy of light and then they change it into chemical energy or the signal of a neuron, which is they use neurotransmitters. That's what your retina neurons do. So it it takes that energy, changes it into a chemical energy, sends the signal back to your optic nerve. And those are just neurons running back that connect to your eye. And then they cross over at the optic chiasm. And then once some, not all of the neurons cross over, but most of the neurons cross over, and then they start heading back to the back part of your brain on the optic tract, it takes a pit stop at the LGN, which is in the thalamus, the lateral geniculate nucleus. That has a bunch of sections. People study it. It's pretty crazy. Then it goes from the LGN and keeps going back, back to the very bottom back part of your brain called V1. And then in there, it also projects to other parts of the brain. You know, there's all these Vs, you know, just a bunch of different sections, parts of the brain that interpret and perceive vision. Is that, does, you know, does that make sense? Yeah. So basically to kind of just really water this down, you see light, it gets turned into a chemical, and then your brain cells pretty much do the wave, sending this, this message all the way back. They take a few pit stops at some places, but eventually they come all the way back to this V1 area, which is at the back of your brain. And then from there, it goes on to different locations. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever that signal is, it will project to a different part of the brain. If it has something to do with music, then it'll go to a different part of the brain than if it has something to do with running. Your vision is very complex and you know different parts of the brain do different things and they interpret different images. So it's just gonna go back to V1 and then to a host of other places. Yeah, this is very complicated and so we won't get super deep into this, but I think studying vision and the neural pathways associated with vision is extremely interesting. I'm not crazy into neuroscience. That's definitely McKay's specialty, but hopefully we'll be able to do some future episodes on this because like McKay was mentioning, it goes to lots of different parts of your brain. There's parts of your brain dedicated to recognizing faces. There's parts of your brain that like if a ball is coming towards you, there's a part of your brain that recognizes, oh, that is a ball. And then there's a different part of your brain that recognizes, oh, that ball is coming towards me. I need to do something about that. So lots of things going on with vision. So there's lots of chances for it to go wrong. And so, for example, with these rhesus monkeys and with DB and with TN, they had something go wrong in their V1 area. So although they were blind, as in they couldn't see, like when they were trying to look through their eyes, it was just darkness, their eyes were still functioning. And so their brain was still picking up a lot of different parts of that signal. And they were able to avoid those objects and feed themselves, even though they were seeing blackness. Yeah, so we currently don't really understand blind sight but we do know you know it happens and something's going on and we want to learn more about it so 
Very but we're interesting. Not, yes, super interesting. We're not going to talk about just blindsight today. We're going to actually talk about you know just detection in all sorts of different ways. So this first paper we're going to be talking about is called Amygdala Responsivity to High-Level Social Information from Unseen Faces. It's by Freeman, Stolier, Ingbretson, and Heeman. It was published in 2014 in the Journal of Neuroscience. So basically what this title is getting at is the amygdala is a part of the brain that is generally responsible for fear and recognizing fearful things. So they call that like your fear center. So what this study was looking at is how your brain reacts when it is shown something and then it's taken away faster than your eyes can actually recognize that you're seeing it. So what I mean by that is these participants were put in an MRI machine. Researchers were able to see what is happening in their brains in real time. And they were presented these faces with varying levels of trustworthiness. So there was low trustworthiness faces, average trustworthiness faces, and high trustworthiness faces. And these participants viewed these faces for 33 milliseconds, which is too fast to perceive. So after those 33 milliseconds, the slides switched and the faces became neutral for 167 milliseconds, which people are able to perceive. In order to kind of throw the participants off the scent here and not distort the results at all, they were given a distraction task to keep their attention, which was to push a button if they ever thought they saw the same face twice. What the researchers are trying to get at is to see whether or not the amygdala was able to recognize these varying levels of trustworthiness on these faces, even though you weren't necessarily consciously perceiving that you saw these faces. Okay, I've got a couple questions. Yes. How did they do the trustworthiness level of a face? How did they do that? So one interesting thing about faces is with all the nuances we have across the world with languages... Our facial expressions are generally pretty universal. So if you picture in your mind right now someone who is angry or someone who is sad or someone who is happy, those facial expressions are generally universal across languages, cultures, continents. Everyone, when they're happy, they generally make the same face. When they're angry, they make the same face. And so a low trustworthiness face just kind of looks mischievous, someone who's not trustworthy. It's kind of hard to describe, but think in your mind of someone who doesn't look trustworthy and that's the type of face they showed them. <laughs> and same nice. thing with the average trustworthiness face, someone's face that doesn't really stick out as being trustworthy or untrustworthy. And then a high trustworthiness face, just again, think in your mind of someone who you just kind of saw and you got the impression, wow, that is a trustworthy face. That is a trustworthy facial expression. There's no mischief going on there. That is the type of face they showed. And if you are really interested, of, of course, we put references to all these articles in the show notes. So if you do want to see what these pictures actually look like feel free to check out these articles because they did show some of the example faces in the article nice just to make sure i'm understanding so they flashed a picture of these trustworthy faces so fast that they couldn't perceive right and then right after that face was flashed they flashed a neutral face that was not uh, necessarily rated for trustworthy or untrustworthy right yeah so these faces were on the screen for a total of 200 milliseconds 33 of those milliseconds were the trustworthiness face okay which is too fast to perceive and right after those 33 milliseconds it was switched over to the neutral face for 167 milliseconds okay. so these pictures are flashing really fast so if you were a participant you wouldn't even know you saw a ton of faces you would only know you saw the neutral faces that's it right yeah because the researchers told them that their task was to pay attention to these faces and press a button every time they saw a duplicate face so they, they weren't even thinking about the trustworthiness levels of these faces they were just thinking about trying to find the duplicate faces and press buttons yeah totally okay that makes sense sweet 
So what did they find? So what they found was very interesting. They found that participants were able to discriminate trustworthiness even without perceiving the face that they saw. Yeah, so how they did this, <laughs> really, really how interesting. How they do that? <laughs> so like I said, they were in an fMRI machine, which if you're not familiar with an MRI machine, fMRI machine, it is one of those big circle things that you see in a doctor's office where a person like lays down flat and they send them in there in an fmri you can see in real time what is happening in a person's brain and you're able to go back and you can see okay when they saw this face this part of their brain became active and so that's what they did they had amygdala activation when they saw the trustworthiness faces specifically they had a lot of amygdala activation when they saw low trustworthiness faces so if you remember the amygdala is the fear center when someone experiences fear their amygdala is very active and so when they saw these low trustworthiness faces the amygdala became more active and another thing too is there was no difference in the amygdala activation in medium and high faces so there was activation in the amygdala when they saw these medium and high trustworthiness faces but it was significantly less than the low trustworthiness faces and the medium and high did not differ at all significantly. Interesting. So you're saying that even though they didn't perceive these people at all, they didn't even know they saw them, but when this was flashed before their eyes, went back into their brain and their brain was like, oh, this is a person who is not as trustworthy, so we're going to activate some fear center so you steer clear. Right, yeah. So the brain, even though you weren't necessarily even realizing what was going on, you were just thinking new face, new face, new face, duplicate, pushing a button. Your brain was picking up that there were these faces being shown to you first, and your amygdala was being activated and telling you, re, 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 low trustworthiness face. Crazy. That's insane. That is a lot of information that the brain can pull from 33 milliseconds. Yeah, so the researchers concluded from this specifically that there may be extensive processing of social cues in the amygdala that are outside of our conscious awareness. So basically what they mean by that is there's a lot of information input into your brain that we don't necessarily notice concerning social cues and social situations, but also a lot of information processing and analysis that we're not even aware of. That's incredible. And that actually has a lot to do with the study that I found as well. And it's titled Unconscious Anxiety, Phobic Responses to Masked Stimuli. This was published in the Journal of Abnormal Psychology in 1994, and it's by Omen and Soares. In this study, there are two experiments that I want to talk about. But in experiment one, they had 825 undergraduates take a survey to see if they were scared of snakes and spiders. The researchers selected eight people who were very afraid of snakes and spiders. Then they chose eight control subjects who weren't afraid of either snakes or spiders. Then they did an experiment to make sure that each of the subjects were able to identify snakes, spiders, mushrooms, and flowers correctly by flashing images in front of them at different speeds. So all participants could recognize the correct object if it wasn't flashed too quickly. So basically, they just flashed them at lower and lower, lower speeds and higher and higher and higher speeds until they found this speed where the participants could no longer see an image, just like we were talking about before, where it's like it was around 33 milliseconds. I don't know if it was the exact same amount of time as the study before, but it was the same general like about 30 milliseconds is when you stop perceiving and you just don't see anything. So they figured that out on the first one. And they also figured out if people could identify, you know, simple objects, snakes, spiders, mushrooms, and flowers. In experiment two, they took 32 people who were scared of snakes and spiders, 16 and 16 for snakes and spiders, and then 16 control subjects. And then they were all shown pictures of four different types of objects, snakes, spiders, mushrooms, and flowers. However, before they were shown a picture that they could perceive, 
the researchers flashed an image so fast that they couldn't perceive it before the image that they perceived. And so they would just randomly match them up. So maybe the subject in the MRI machine would see a flower, but right before the flower came into his vision, he was flashed an image of a spider. So kind of like what happened in the experiment that I was talking about. Something really fast you can't see, and then it's covered up by something that you can see. Exactly, exactly. They might not even consciously notice that a spider or a snake is being shown to them. They just see flower. Exactly, exactly. So they wouldn't. They wouldn't see the flashed image. They would only see like the second image that was put before them. While this was happening, the researchers measured skin conductance of the participants while they were seeing these pictures. And what that means is they were measuring how sweaty their hand was, basically. (laughs) Fancy research term for sweat. Yes. So what the researchers found was that if you were scared of snakes and or spiders and you were flashed an image of a snake or a spider, then your hand got sweatier, basically. Significantly sweatier (laughs) than the other people. And your skin conductance increased. And this applied if they saw it or if they didn't perceive it, but it was still flashed before their eyes. So does that make sense? Yeah, so if they were shown the picture long enough to actually perceive it, they got sweaty. But even if it was too fast, like the 30 milliseconds fast, and they didn't even get a chance to perceive it, they still got sweaty. Exactly. Wow. So your body was responding to an image that you didn't even see. Well, you did see it, but you didn't even perceive it. Right, you didn't recognize that you were seeing it. You didn't consciously see it. Which blows my mind. And what's what's crazier is that actually when they did not perceive the image, their hands got a little bit sweatier than when they did perceive the image. Really? Weird. Yeah, don't know why. So I think that goes to show, once again, that our brains are doing a lot for us that we don't even recognize. Outside of our conscious awareness, our brains are constantly working overtime. I was thinking of something our listeners might have a question about, and that's subliminal messaging. Does this have anything to do with subliminal messaging? And yes, it does, because subliminal messaging is something that's under your conscious awareness, but it still affects you. And so it's similar, but there's still debate in the field whether or not subliminal messaging actually works. Advertising is the way that people really try and do it, you know, because if you subliminally message stuff, then they'll buy your product more. It's kind of how, you know, subliminal messaging got its name and became famous, you know, just like people started thinking about it and talking about it. And so they've done research and there's mixed evidence for this. Some studies show that it works. Other studies show that it doesn't work. If you're interested in learning more about like subliminal messaging and advertising, there's a book called Biology and it's B-U-Y, like to buy something and then ology. It's a really good book and it goes through like the neuroscience of advertising and what things have been done and what studies have been done. I've read it. It's really good. So if you want to learn more about that, you can check out that book. So actually what's really interesting is another study found that a patient named G.Y. who is blind on one side of their visual field can still accurately guess the emotion of a face shown to the blind part of his visual field. Crazy. Same kind of like blindsight thing. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so this research is really interesting, but I could see why our listeners might not see quite yet why or how this applies to them every day. What are your thoughts, McKay? 
for me, what I thought about and how I'm going to change my behavior based on this research that I read is that my brain is picking stuff up left and right, even when I don't necessarily perceive it, right? I might be, mm-hmm. you know, I might see something but not perceive it, but it still has some sort of effect on me. And we don't know exactly how everything affects us. We only know certain things, like things we're scared of, like snakes and spiders or untrustworthy people or stuff like that. But like, we don't necessarily know what, you know, like music that we hear in the background that we're not even necessarily listening to, but like we hear it. We don't know how that affects us. But I am going to be a bit more cautious about the things that are around me and that are presented to me because they do affect me in some way even when I don't necessarily understand it. So I'm going to think about like even if some movies playing in the background and I'm not necessarily watching it but it's like I'm hearing it and kind of seeing it I'm just going to think more about what's going on around me and choose to be around things that I want to affect me for good. I had a similar takeaway kind of on the flip side of that coin. Our brain is very quick to make judgments and draw conclusions, oftentimes without us even knowing. So like in study number one that we talked about, these people were making snap judgments about these faces that they didn't even realize they were seeing. And they weren't making these judgments in a conscious way. It was just their amygdala activating and telling them that there was something to be aware of. And so in our lives, we make these judgments all the time too. We see these things and we just make these snap judgments about them. And a lot of the times, these are judgments that we're making based on our past experiences. So on a more chronic level than just 30 milliseconds seeing a face, from a cognitive behavioral perspective and from a cognitive behavioral attempting to change model, most of the ideas we have about the world are formed by the time we're a teenager. And I don't know about you, but There were a lot of ideas I had as a teenager that I look back on and laugh at now because I know a lot more about the world. So just like we should be willing to challenge things that we see and make a snap judgment about, we should also be open to receiving new information and using that to challenge our current beliefs about the world. So maybe you see that picture flash in front of your face and it's an untrustworthy face. That person could be a very trustworthy person and they just had a certain look on their face. So instead of immediately judging that person to be something or you see someone walking on the street and based on what they're wearing, based on what they look like, based on what they're driving or what bike they're riding or whatever it is, you make these snap judgments based on your past experiences because your brain takes in that information and immediately makes these judgments. We can challenge those and think, okay, I'm having this thought that this person is probably like this. I can challenge that and I can recognize that that might not be true. I'm just thinking that based on my past experiences and based on the things my brain is telling me based on the judgments it's making. Love that, Ben. That is a great takeaway. And I think everyone, all of our listeners and everyone in the world should do that because Ben is right. Like our brain makes quick judgments that aren't always right, aren't always true. And when we learn to challenge those, we become much happier and a little bit more in control of our our thoughts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so one example that is often given when talking about this thought changing process, when we challenge these snap judgments we make, think about when you're driving. So you're driving down the street, you see a light turn yellow and then it turns red. You don't necessarily think about your foot lightly coming off the gas and then lightly touching the brake and then pressing harder and harder and harder until you come to a complete stop. A lot of these things you do are just very automatic. Same thing with driving on the right side of the road. When you make a left-hand turn, you're not super sweaty trying to stay on the right side of the road. You just kind of do it. And it's the same thing when you walk into a room that you've been in a million times. You don't walk into your own house and think, oh, wow, these walls and look at that ceiling and oh my goodness. You do that when you walk into a new space. Once you become accustomed to a space, your brain kind of just autofills all this information that it already knows. But 
just like when we're first learning to drive, we have to think a lot about it and then it becomes automatic. If you were to go over to England or to go to Jamaica or somewhere else where they drive on the left side of the road, all of a sudden that automatic process becomes very, very manual and you have to really think about it. So when you're making a left-hand turn, you have to remember, okay, I'm in England now, I'm driving on the left side of the road, I'm making a left-hand turn, I got to stay on the left side of the road. It's like making a right-hand turn over in America. But over time, those thoughts will become automatic. So just like when you're trying to make a driving change when you move to a new country and you have to tell yourself and think it through over and over again until those thoughts become automatic, when you see someone that you have a tendency to judge or when you get into a situation, you tend to make those snap judgments, you can challenge that over and over again until it becomes automatic. So you see a person that you make a snap judgment about, whether it's what they're wearing or the face they make, and you have that snap judgment, you recognize that and you say to yourself, I know this isn't true, this is a snap judgment, what is it something I can replace this thought with? And over time, that will become more and more automatic. Awesome. This week, I've got a lot to work on and a lot to try. New things that I'm going to do. Thank you for the takeaway, Ben. I think that's super awesome. So I'm going to watch out for what's around me as well as I'm going to pay more attention to my automatic brain processes that make judgments on things. And I'm going to challenge my beliefs and those thoughts. <music> been listening to noggin the simple psychology podcast thank you for listening to our show we really appreciate it we have shared with you only a few articles of the thousands that have been published on this subject though we wish we could go more in depth we hope you've enjoyed our introduction and interpretation of this topic we don't claim to know everything but we have shared with you our takeaways from reading this research i'm mckay and i'm ben and we hope you have a great rest of your day Thank you.